Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. In the next 30 minutes, how Imad Alarnab escaped the war in Syria and became one of London's most exciting restaurateurs. This is something I loved about this city from the first moment. You can be anything. You can be any color. You can be from any faith, from any background. You will be part of this amazing mosaic. Then how a company called Morning has set out to revolutionize the way we enjoy coffee at home. I have the water right. I have the grind size right. And how come the coffee still doesn't taste the way it's written on the bag? Because you read the bag, right? And it's just tasting notes. But I, hey, I'm not nailing it. And the final piece with this whole equation was recipes. All that and more here on the menu on Monocle Radio. Imad Alarnab was a successful restaurateur in his home city of Damascus, but in the war his businesses were destroyed and he had to escape Syria as a refugee. Travelling through Lebanon to Europe, he finally made it to the UK, arriving in London in 2015. It was cooking that helped him along the way, offering him a way to support others and giving a feeling of hope. In London, he eventually met people who helped him to launch supper clubs. They became so successful, he finally decided to open a restaurant of his own. Imad's Syrian kitchen opened in Kingly Court in central London two years ago, and now a new cookbook is out. It's called Imad's Syrian Kitchen, a love letter from Damascus to London. I spoke to Imad at Midori House Studio One, and he began by telling me about his journey that brought him to the British capital. You can't plan a journey like this because you don't really know You know, when you are going to a vacation or something, you would say, I'm going to Marrakesh, Morocco next month to stay there for three days. I have this hotel booking with kind of journey like I did. It's not the same situation. I didn't plan to come to the UK. I was hoping to come to the UK, you know. I wanted to come to the UK, but nothing certain about it. I had to stay in Calais for 64 days. You stayed in the jungle, you say. I stayed you near make it like of the jungle. Place. Mm. Yeah, it is very scary place. So this is why I couldn't stay in the jungle like most of people did. Instead, I stayed somewhere near of Calais, the city, on an old church steps for 64 days. And I think this is where Imad Syrian Kitchen starting from because over there I start cook for other refugees and volunteers and I've been chef almost all of my life but to recook to the people it was great energy for me and this is where it's keep me going and to be honest otherwise I would give up and go somewhere else but lucky me keep cooking for others it's give me energy and hope and appreciation from the volunteers, uh, locals in Calais, and other refugees. So you had your first pop-ups. Can you tell us who were helping you with those pop-ups? Like who were the most influential figures um, over, here, over here who helped you? Yeah, as I told you, my, my, my best friend, Leila Yarijani, she's American, lived in the UK, and now we are working together between here and the USA as well. 
a lot of people. Like I cannot start talking about the angels because honestly, I will forget at least a hundred names. Mm-hmm. When I first came to the UK as well, I had many different friends, but from many different minorities and many different backgrounds. But the comment between all of us was, "We all Londoners," and this is something. I loved about this city from the first moment. You can be anything. You can be any color. You can be from any faith, from any background. You will be part of this amazing mosaic. You know, like everywhere I went in my journey was on the spot. You know, maybe it's only in my mind. Maybe no one pointing at me. Maybe it's all in my. Imagining something like this, but when I arrived to King's Cross, somehow it's all disappeared. Everyone looks so different, and that makes me fit very well between them. I will be disappeared. I will be invisible, you know. And I loved it. For the first time, for a long time, I can be me and only me. I don't have to pretend to be someone else. Somehow, some people have this idea about refugee, like we all look alike, or we all are from the same background, or the same color, maybe, or the same faith. No, we are not. We are just like any human being could be very different and very similar. We have doctors, but we ha- also have criminals. Mm-hmm. It's amazing reading this story in the book that you have just released, Imad's Syrian Kitchen. What I want to ask about is about food. Actually, now when we look at what you've been doing in the UK, so I'm wondering what's been your guiding principle when you, for example, opened the first pop-ups back in the day, and then now in your restaurants. What are the aspects of Syrian cooking you want to showcase? First of all, it's very simple cuisine. We don't have this complicated. Recipes or method or even machines, you know, like all of it. Even our ingredients are very simple. No one in the world, I don't think, no one in the world didn't try cumin, for example. This is one of our most common spices, or mint, or onion, garlic, few things like this. It's not very hot. It's not very mild. We use a lot of spices, but it's not. Something unique, you know, like it's very simple, very straightforward. If you are a beginner, you can cook at least half of these recipes. Some of them are traditional recipes, like hummus, falafel. I didn't even dare to change anything about them. It's not mine. It's Damascus. Every corner in Damascus have at least falafel and hummus shop, and you can find the same. It's all test. The same, nothing special about any of them because we don't like to play or to change these recipes. But there is also my own recipes, which is adjusted as a Londoner Syrian who dare to dream about new recipes and adjust it as a Syrian recipes. What do you think have been the most successful recipes of yours in the restaurant? For example, what do you think the people enjoy most? So there is two kind of these recipes. First of all, something new, which is stunning, amazing. Yes, we loved it, and we never heard of it. Like for example, saruja or dakka salad or these kind of recipes. And this is what I love the most. And there is other recipes where people can say their names, like falafel, hummus, mm-hmm. baba ganoush. You know, sometimes you go to a table. 
they only want to say the names that they are familiar mm-hmm. with because maybe somehow people being scared to order something they don't know anything about or maybe because it's easy to to pronounce what Humbles. are those things you would recommend to them some things that people may not know saruja da uh, salat this is my my recipes and uh, Uh, zatar salat, my version of zatar salat. Um, What do you have in them? For example, saruja, it's combination of baked aubergines with two kinds of cheese and two kinds of molasses, date and cherry molasses. Stunning, amazing, love it. It's a weird combination, but it's worked really, really well together. Zatar salat, for example, it's salty... cheese with watermelon and zata extra virgin olive oil it's great you're gonna love it we always had it in syria but we had it separately it's not like a salad we always had a piece of bread dip it with zata and then a piece of halloumi cheese in it with bite of watermelon we always had it but i don't know why it was me the first one who thought to make it all together as a salad. Can you pick another recipe or two, some of your favorites from the book? Um, Tafayet Bamiye, which is Lebanese and okra. Also, it's a weird combination, but it's mine. I loved it. <laughs> There is few toppings of hummus. It's also a new toppings. So the hummus itself, the hummus recipe, it's the original one, I promise you. It's only the, the garnishing or the topping of hummus. It's quite different. How do you find the ingredients in London? Do you have to compromise? Uh, no, not really. No, no, no. Not at all. Actually, it's a different type of compromising. Like, for example, there is few dishes in Syria. We use a lot of fat or ghee or... So make it healthier, for example. Instead of deep frying, you can bake it. It's a good compromising. It's taking the recipe for a next level, I think. Sounds very good. And just finally, Imad, I have to mention something that I found from the book and I thought it was really striking. So obviously you tell your story, everything you went through on this journey to get to the UK when you left Syria. But also what's interesting is that there's a final message in the book where you share some of your thoughts about what you've learned after all this and what you think about what's happening in the world at the moment. Actually, I'm still building on that final message all the time. First of all, about the story, it's not the whole story. It's what I could put in this book. To be honest, for others, this my story in the book could be inspiring or could be like you will know about the refugees a little bit more. For me, it was more like a therapy, you know, like let go. I had a closure for a lot of things in this. I think nothing will stay like it is forever. And we should all learn about this from COVID. Now, when I hear people complaining a bit again about Central Line, for example. A tube line in London. Yes. We keep complaining about everything. I miss these days. We should remember from those days where the tubes were empty, where Central London were booming. We, we should love London the way it is right now. It's great. And we need to... Not only love it, we need to protect it and be like, we all remember those days when you go to central London during the pandemic and it was scary. And now is the good times. Let's rebuild it again and be part of the good economy and be part of good community and this music 
not only in the UK, not only in London, in the whole world, to be part of this and to be proud to be part of it. Imad Arnab there and his book Imad Syrian Kitchen, a love letter from Damascus to London, is out now. You are listening to The Menu on Monaco Radio. London is known for its strong cafe culture and one entrepreneur dominating the industry is Jake Manjon. Having moved from Australia with a background in marketing, Manjon decided to U-turn into hospitality and has since made his mark on South London. He founded his renowned Brickwood Cafe in 2013, prioritizing good, nutritious food, quality coffee and an authentic cafe experience. And his hospitality endeavors have since expanded to include bars, pubs and an upcoming wellness center. Monaco's Monica Lilly is headed down to Clapham to meet Jake and find out more. London is a hive of bakeries, brunch spots and quaint cafes. On every street corner of the city I call home, there's someone sipping an orange juice, munching on a croissant or running to work with an iced latte in hand. I live in leafy South London, where the selection is plentiful and Saturday brunch is sacred. One spot that always attracts a crowd is Newground on Abbeville Road, a quiet street in the heart of Clapham with a dozen or so independent shops, restaurants and pubs. Newground was founded in 2019 by local food entrepreneurs Joanna and Jake Mangion, who are well known in the area for venues such as the award-winning Brickwood Cafe and Old Town Tavern. I headed to the cafe on a sunny June morning to speak to co-founder Jake about the drinking and dining spots he's opened so far, and I started by asking him how it all started. Well, I'm originally from Melbourne. I've been living in London, southwest London for 20 years now and like most Aussies you come over with a backpack to see the world and you know not too sure what you want to do or at least you know have a couple of years of traveling and yeah just uh, got into hospitality because I did sales and marketing at uni and I dropped out of that and then I was in advertising for a national newspaper in Australia and I did that for as long as I realized that okay I don't want to do this and wear a suit anymore and then hospitality just fed my travels around Australia. I worked around yeah like I said Australia and uh, uh, going to Tokyo for a little bit and I worked in hospitality over there in Japan then to Europe and that was the start of the travels and then that was at the same time Malta joined the European Union because my father is of Maltese descent so I was able to get a passport so that was my right of passage how I was able to stay here and um, just started working in hospitality and just you know uh, realized quite quickly that I could take the fundamentals of what I learned at uni and then in advertising and then just kind of you know cultivate that to potentially create something of uh, of my own. Entree was the first independent restaurant that I had and it was a modern European restaurant and then in the basement we had a little cocktail piano bar which was absolute labor of love and then opened Brickwood Cafe and saw that there was an opportunity with that because that was, I think, you know, like most things, it's timing, which is, you know, a big part of the success. And I think that was just the start of brunch culture. You only really had kind of caffeine. Um, You had caravan as well. It only had one store. 
and then there was flat white in Soho but there was no one for me that was really having a mm. an equivalent food focus mm. with cafe culture and you know being from Melbourne and that was just a precedent there as I so okay I'm going to lean into really really good brunch and atmosphere and environment and I'm you know going to stay in my neighborhood which was southwest which mm. is good old Clapham uh, <laughs> where there wasn't too much you know um and was able to ride that wave for quite a while cafe or calf culture in the UK is nothing new Cafes have been around in Britain since the turn of the last century and have served as watering holes for anyone and everyone. They typically offer classic English breakfasts, mugs of milky tea and bacon sandwiches. However, despite being a staple of British society, over the last decade or so, cafes have become less and less popular in favour of more nutritious alternatives alongside the rise of wellness culture. It's the Australian breakfast that customers now gravitate towards, including poached eggs, avocado on toast, and of course, the flat white. When Jake set up his famed Brickwood Cafe in 2013, Australian cafe culture was still creeping into popularity, and he became one of the first to bring the more refined and typically healthier Aussie influences to the London food scene. What is undervalued or underrated within the UK or London in any way is that greasy spoon calf culture that is a true culture and you know I love going into a greasy spoon you know every now yeah. and then and that has an essence and for me it's like you know that is the foundation of cafe culture okay yes you know you say okay the Aussie cafe culture but there was a much longer prevalent cafe culture as far as a british style of cafe culture <laughs> you know just the the aussie and kiwi influence has kind of just done it our particular way which is just modernized and made it a little bit lighter i did see a gap in the market but brickwood was off the back of that i already had the restaurant mm. and it was that you know we weren't so successful during the day on battersea rise as far as a, a restaurant and a lunch service and i just got really frustrated with not having anywhere I used to run a bar on um Clapham Common South side and I was an operations manager and uh my office was kind of upstairs and there was a window and I always used to see into this courtyard which is where Brickwood Clapham is now and it was this hair salon this lovely gay guy and I used to go and get my hair cut in there once a month and uh he'd always tell me about his life story and his predicament you know what I mean it's like oh, this if like somebody just give me any money for this I'll just piss off to Ibiza and you know <laughs> and when I was ready for him I was like you know I put the cards on the table and said okay well you know do you want to do a deal and so you know Brickwood Cafe was born in Clapham and uh you know that was the precedent where I saw that there was a distinctive model we were you know one of the very first ones to be offering like a full table service within a cafe culture and i think that was the thing that uh, we were able to elevate the experience because it had always been just the mentality was going in for a you know a cafe ordering at the counter and stuff so mm. that was the essence for me it wasn't yeah. just about the coffee it was about the brunch it was trying to have that balance of a true experience Along with an elevated experience of eating, one of Jake's priorities is to use local and sustainable produce. We use a number of suppliers and it's always fully traceable and sourceable and we've got good relationships, but I've got the same I use the same suppliers that I've used for about 15 years and so really good respectable relationships which helps because then they're fighting for your corner because if they know that you're consistent when you pay 
if they know that you're consistent as an operator, they are the things that fundamentally help. Mm. We own a bakery as well, so uh, we own the old post office bakery in Clapham North, which is London's uh, oldest bakery. We acquired that just after COVID, and so fundamentally we supply all of our cafes, our organic breads and pastries on a daily basis. And yeah, just working you know, with key suppliers that know what you're trying to achieve, have your, your best intentions at heart. Also being very open to what else is out there, you know, because you'll get like a bespoke halloumi supplier which we use or you know you can get we work with uh, life of fish up the road which is an independent fishmonger and we get some really really good salmon and stuff like that so you know they're the fun parts to be honest with you mm-hmm. you much you'd rather be dealing with you know a new roastery or a new salmon supply than dealing with bloody british gas that's for sure and of course i couldn't leave without asking jake what his favorite dish on the menu is which is his take on a traditional english breakfast I like the butcher, especially now we're going to innovate again because we've just got an amazing new um, butcher that we're going to be working with, which is going to give us this nice, lovely um, smoked thick cut bacon. So rather than having maybe two or three or four strips of bacon, we're going to have a nice thick cut. So I, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's that comfort food. Whether it's innovating new dishes or setting up London's next pub to be, it's clear that Jake Mangion's pioneering take on the hospitality industry will be a strong presence in southwest London for a long time to come. For Monocle Radio, I'm Monica Lillis. Thanks, Monica. You are with The Menu. Sticking with the theme of coffee, Morning is a Singapore-based business that has set out to revolutionise the way we enjoy coffee at home. It has created what has been said to be the world's first specialty coffee capsule machine. And on top of that, it has created a platform and marketplace for independent coffee roasters to get their products out to an international audience. Leon Fu is the CEO and co-founder of the business and he joined me to explain more about the mission Morning has and how the company was born. So I've been in coffee for about 14 years. I've been a barista, I've been a green bean buyer, I've been a roaster. But I think at the heart of it all, I'm a home brewer, uh, like everybody else. I try to make coffee at home and then I realised that I have the water right, I have the grind size right. And how come the coffee still doesn't taste the way it's written on the back? Because you read the back, right? And it's just tasting notes, but I, hey, I'm not nailing it. And the final piece with this whole equation was recipes. So I think about four years ago, when Nespresso's pattern expired uh, in 2010, you know, capsules became really popular. And like some of your favorite coffee shops are putting really good coffee in capsules. I think I seized upon the opportunity that maybe I could make a machine that could solve this problem. So I set out to create like a Dyson of coffee machines. And what we want to do is with one touch of a button, it could brew roaster design recipes. And we obviously made some features in the machine that could really bring out the flavors in the coffee. So some pattern technology, how we brew in the chamber. We took the $20,000 coffee machine feature and put it in a $300 coffee machine. That's how we started. And I think there was a gap in the market also, which means that there are these amazing roasters with pots, but then they're also fragmented. And then if you were to buy, you have to go like one or two or three or four websites to buy. But we are saying that coffee is going to be like wine and craft beer. You don't really drink the same coffee. You kind of want to buy different coffees and try at home. So we created a platform called drinkmorning.com. So you can go in and shop and buy and a whole retail experience with that. But the magic, 
is actually when you bring that home, you put it in the machine and you press a button and it will brew the parameters of what the roasters set. So you're drinking coffee like how roasters intended it to taste. So this is the recipe you were talking about. Yes. So, so tell me more about how it works in practice. You buy capsules. What's amazing about Morning is that you have collaborated with so many independent roasters. By the way, I think you have, what, eight different capsules available at the moment. Yes. And they all come with their own recipes. So how do these recipes work in practice? So one may ask what is the recipe and what makes the coffee taste different. So there are three things in the machine that really brings out the flavours. So the first one is temperature. Very precise temperature because... All these roasters are putting different coffees like dark roast, light roast, medium roast. And you want a specific temperature to bring out the flavor. So if it's dark roast, you want to brew it a bit lower temperature. And if it's lighter, you want to brew it at a higher temperature. The second thing was pressure profile. So you know how it flows out. You can visually see how it flows. But the current machine out there, it's brewing one-dimensional. One temperature, one pressure, one output. So when we added a pressure profile, low in the beginning, high in the middle taper off at the end, brings out really different flavours. We even pre-infused water in the chamber, soaks up the coffee and then hits it with high pressure. So kind of like when you do the filter coffee in the coffee shop where there's the V60, they pour a bit of water, it blooms. So that we do that in the chamber also. The last one is there's a scale there. So always specific output that's set by the roaster. So Nespresso has two buttons in the machine, which is 40ml or 110ml. But our machine, you can put any output. Mm -hmm. And output is a very important piece in coffee because that's what you call the brew ratio. So you can have a small cup, you have a medium cup, but some coffees are best drunk at 80 ml out and it's specified by the roaster. So that makes sure, really brings out the flavours. Instead, it might be too diluted or too thick or too strong. So like we, with one touch of a button, you could brew the roaster design recipes. How easy is the user experience, by the way, when so, you have to think about all those adjustments? So, so we were very conscious about when we made the machine, whether it would be too complicated for everybody. But we made sure that we decoupled some of the things that was on the app and on the machine. So there was a dial. It's a beautiful dial that you can turn. You can jog around the dial and the recipes. But we are creating easier ways to just brew recipes, which is take a picture of a box and then we just recommend a recipe or brew the exact recipe. So uh, like image recognition, or we would see it's like Ethiopian coffee, okay, this recommend recipe. Uh, blonde roast, this recommended recipe. But if you're a partner roaster, your recipe will just pop up. That's very clever. Tell me more about those independent roasters you have been collaborating with because you have such an amazing selection over there. What do you think are some of the most interesting ones? I think what's happening is that there are a few things that we're trying to do with roasters. The first one is that actually homebrewers or people in general are very interested in their story. So it's not just a story of the farms that they buy from. And majority of these specialty roasters are really buy with a lot of ethical sourcing. But it's the journey of how they started their coffee shop, what's their buying philosophy, what's their roasting philosophy, what are they passionate about. And actually every coffee shop or roaster has a journey how they started the business. So we try to translate that. That's one part. And then we go into the coffees, obviously coffees that we feel that people might like. Some roasters have a few. But what has been interesting is that they've been pushing the boundaries a bit, right? So they take their idiosyncrasies of how they roast, how they sauce, and translate that into the packaging, the coffee, uh, nuances in the recipe. We try to tell that story and sell that coffee in a different part of the world. And I think it's a two-way street because it's a form of 
what I call a platform for them to tell their story in a different region that they might have fans like the Korean roasters now. So we have one roaster in Korea called Namasairo. It's a lovely lady. She's very passionate about coffee. I met her a few times and we just launched a coffee that's quite exclusive with her. So the moment you brew it, you can smell strawberries, peaches. When you drink it, I wish I could let you try now, but it's little things like that. I think there are more roasters coming into this format. And I think there are more what we call better formats with the material that people are using. Wood chips, compostables, uh, home compostables, and then obviously you have aluminium. And I would imagine the selection of those capsules is only going to grow in the future. Just finally, how can people get a hold of morning coffee machines? Right now on drinkmorning.co.uk or drinkmorning.com, we are selling in about 35 different countries, either direct or with resellers. Some roasters do a really good job pushing our coffee and pairing it. I recommend getting a machine, but use it with the recipe. That's where the magic happens. Leon Fu, CEO and founder of Morning There. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in Los Angeles. Also remember our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. This programme was researched by Monica Lillis And our studio engineers were David Stevens and Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Miguel with coffee. Thanks for listening and until next week. Coffee in the